Radiotopia. Welcome to the Kitchen Sisters present PRX. We're the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. Hi, this is Nikki of the Kitchen Sisters. We want to tell you about a new weekly from PRX called Monumental. Did you know there are 22 monuments depicting mermaids, but only two depicting U.S. Congresswomen? The landscape of public memory is changing, but is the day-to-day changing with it? Monumental will uncover the stories that our monuments are telling about what and who is important, as well as the stories that have been left out. Join host Ashley C. Ford and our team of 12 journalists across the country as they confront the reality of what we publicly commemorate, exploring big questions about the past, present, and future of monuments. Listen on Mondays, wherever you get your podcasts. The Kitchen Sisters Present is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Saturday, my family would bring my brother and me to the marketplace. The women would bring their pots in their containers and they would set up shop. They decorated their little boots. They would put ribbons on them or paper mache and oil cloths, red and white. And uh, they had their little lanterns or their farolitos. For a dime, you could get chili con carne, tamales, beans, coffee. They were entrepreneurs. They were business ladies, and they made enough money to take care of the family. Welcome to Fugitive Waves. Lost recordings and shards of sound, along with new tales of remarkable people from around the world. We're the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva. Some kitchens are in hidden locations, and others are obscured by time. Lost because their era has come and gone, like the saga of the Chili Queens. We first heard about the Chili Queens when we were interviewing Jeffrey Pilcher, a professor of history at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. He was talking to us about his intriguing research on the globalization of the taco. And in the middle of the conversation, Professor Pilcher, an expert in the field of Mexican cooking and its historical meaning and significance, veered off the taco and into another of his essays, Who Chased Out the Chili Queens? Ethnicity and Urban Reform in San Antonio, Texas, 1880-1943. to Well, forget the taco. We wanted to know more about the Chili Queens. And within weeks, seven pounds of Chili Queen research was sent to our doorstep in San Francisco. Thank you, Jeffrey Pilcher. Jeffrey had never actually spoken with the Chili Queen, so we decided we better go to the source. All roads led to Jorge Cortez, whose family has owned the restaurant Mitierra since the 1940s. It's located on the old Haymarket Plaza in San Antonio, where the Chili Queens were last seen cooking. It took us about 10 calls to get this busy patron on the phone, and when we finally did, the news was not good. 
You're too late, he told us. She died two weeks ago. She turned out to be Trinidad Garcia, one of the last of the Chile queens, a woman who had worked for the Cortez family as a waitress since the Chile stands closed on the plazas in the 1940s. Time was wasting, and the trail was getting cold, so we headed for San Antonio, looking for Chile and ghosts, and trying to find traces of a story that stretches back across Texas more than 100 years, the saga of the Chile Queens of San Antonio. I'm Isabel Sanchez. I was born in San Antonio, Texas. My grandmother's name was Teresa Cantu Rocha. She was a Chile queen. She was around at that time. What I would hear from my mother, they had tables, they were outside, around the Mercado, around the cathedral, and she lived downtown. So it was very convenient for her to set up someplace around there. I was a little boy in the 1930s, just before the Chile Queens were banished. I'm Felix D. Almaraz, Jr. I'm professor of history at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Saturday, my family would bring my brother and me to the marketplace. The women would bring their pots in their containers, and they would set up shop. They decorated their little boots. They would put ribbons on them or paper mache and oil cloths red and white, and uh, they had their little lanterns or their farolitos. For a dime, you could get chili con carne, tamales, beans, coffee. They were entrepreneurs. They were business ladies, and they made enough money to take care of the family. An artist from the newspaper sketched a chili queen in 1894. She's wearing a rebozo and smoking a cigarette. I'm Tom Shelton photo archivist at the Institute of Texan Cultures Library, San Antonio. This is the description. The ever-attentive, always jolly Chili Queen. They are good fellows, these Chili Queens, and are able and willing to talk on any subject from love to law. They are bright, bewitching creatures and put themselves to much trouble to please their too often rowdy customers. Every class of people who come to this city visit the places and partake of the piquant edibles. The Chili Queens were romanticized in the press as being these exotic Spanish women, the sable hair and the fiery tempers. I'm Jeff Pilcher. I've written a book about food and the making of Mexican identity. Visitors who were just starting to take the railroad down to San Antonio in the 1880s that would talk about all they remember was the Alamo and the Chili Queens. And of course, the Chili Queens were their first introduction to that spicy, dangerous Mexican food. Various savory compounds swimming in fiery pepper, which biteth like a serpent. This is a compound of chopped meat and pulverized red pepper stewed until the meat has been thoroughly saturated with the pepper. They would set up their tables, you know, every afternoon and knock them down late at night. My name is Annie Madrid Salas. The ladies would be with their homemade braceros and comals. I don't know who named them the Chili Queens. Probably some gringo. <laughs> 1893, for example, the Chili Queens became widely known because they had a chili booth at the Chicago World's Fair, the Columbian Exposition. But the uh, city fathers had just banned the Chili Queens from setting up their stands 
in Alamo Plaza. And so you could get a bowl of chili in Chicago, but you couldn't get a bowl of chili outside the Alamo. Alamo Plaza was uh, more for Caucasians and business people, politicians. Every parade in town had to pass in front of the Alamo. The Chili Queens were considered uh, an eyesore because their little setups were not, uh, they were not high tone. My name is Graciela Sanchez. Plaza del Zacate was the place where the Mexicano community in San Antonio used to come and it was a farmer's market. And then as it got to dark, the Chili Queens had their little table set up. Musicians like Lidia Mendoza and her family would be the walking troubadours. The Chili Queens went back and forth, moving from plaza to plaza. The struggle continued all the way up until the 1930s. That's when it was changed from being sort of a public nuisance to being a health hazard. Health department eventually uh, lowered the boom on them, you know, first... uh, they made them start screened and covering up, and then, like, eventually they went into small uh, restaurants. I believe it was, like, around 1937 when they uh, finally shut them down. This is a picture of Juanita and Esperanza Garcia, shown making tortillas. City Health Department ordered removal of chili queens in their stands brought an end to a 200-year-old tradition. This is a picture of a woman in uh, World War II. She's holding a chili pot, and the caption reads, Chili con Hitler, into the scrap metal piles which San Antonians are gathering to defeat the Axis. Saturday went a 125-year-old chili pot contributed by Ms. Luce Trevino. To this day, the street vendors who sell their tacos and other dishes are really carrying on an old Hispanic tradition. The problem arises in the United States because we have different ideas about urban life. You know, streets should be a place that are efficient, where people go places and not loiter around eating and drinking and making merry. It was revived briefly in the 1980s where they tried to recreate these chili vendors. And of course, it became part of the river walk well, there's always that tension between the way that corporate America wants to establish their uh, food traditions and the way these immigrants from other lands want to carry on their own traditions. When they were here, we uh, we didn't protect them. We, we didn't know that there would be bureaucrats who would come at them and try to get them either to reform or to change or to move out and it seems that they moved them out. But I, I miss it. The Chili Queens, the music, the aromas. The plaza was where you met your friends and you exchanged news. That was life, it was just a coming together. When we were in San Antonio, we were lucky enough to track down Lydia Mendoza, the queen of Tejano music. She began her legendary career singing in the plazas of downtown San Antonio with the Chili Queens in 1930. Lydia was born in 1916 in Houston, Texas. She grew up in Monterey, Mexico, and in the towns along the border. Both her mother and her grandmother played the guitar. 
Even as a little girl, Lydia was in love with music. When she was four, she nailed rubber bands to a piece of wood and made her first guitar. In the early 1930s, the Mendozas moved to San Antonio and began performing in the plazas. Lydia's big break came when she won a singing contest on the radio, which led to her family signing a contract with Bluebird Records in 1934. The producers asked Lydia to record some solo cuts. Among them was Malombre, a song about a cold-hearted man who breaks his lover's heart. Years before, Lydia had learned the lyrics from a gum wrapper. Music promoters used to print the words to popular songs on gum wrappers. I'm Lydia Mendoza, and I used to sing all these songs in the Mercado. I am Yolanda Hernandez. I'm Lydia Mendoza's second daughter. She was about nine years old when she first started going there to the Mercado, and that it was really her mother that, that was the singer then. She would just be there and accompany her with a guitar. The vendors from the valley would come with their fruits and vegetables, and they sold all of that during the day at the Mercado. And when they closed up at about 8, that's when they would start singing, and the Chili Queens came out with their food. Her sister Maria would, would go around with a plate and, and uh, they would collect like nickels and dimes. On a good Saturday or Sunday, they would get enough to pay their rent, which was like about a dollar fifty. That was her life, just, just sing and, and make, make a living that way. By the time World War II broke out, Lydia had recorded more than 200 songs. She was known as the Lark of the Border. In 1977, Mendoza sang at Jimmy Carter's inaugural celebration. She received a National Heritage Award from the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you, NEA, once again. And she was awarded the National Medal of the Arts by President Clinton. In his speech, Clinton said, her legacy is as wide and deep as the Rio Grande Valley. Chili Queens of San Antonio was produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, with Laura Folger and Nathan Dalton, mixed by Jim McKee. Special thanks to the National Endowment for the Arts. Art works. Fugitive Waves is produced by the Kitchen Sisters with Nathan Dalton and Brandy Howe. You can follow us on Twitter at Kitchen Sisters or share your photos on Instagram. Fugitive Waves is part of Radiotopia from PRX collective of the best story-driven creative cutting-edge radio shows on earth. Radiotopia is made possible with support from the Knight Foundation and MailChimp, who celebrate creativity, chaos, and teamwork. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Fugitive Waves or other shows like it, 
Email sponsor at prx.org. And don't forget to subscribe to Fugitive Waves, stories from the flip side of history. It's an election year, have you noticed? But does it feel like our democracy is running smoothly? Does it feel like our leaders are responsive to our needs? If you don't think so, you're not alone. So the question is, how can we start to fix it? Luckily, there are things we can do right now to get us back on track. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group of shows, hosts, and networks who are banding together to try and make things better. We're partnering with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization working city by city and state by state to pass laws that protect democracy and improve it. We need a system that works for the American people, not just special interests. And you can do your part. Go to represent.us slash podcast. That's represent.us slash podcast to join the movement today. Radiotopia.